Okay, so fine-tuning in the universe is another new idea about God. And that is, is the universe really finely tuned by God to be exactly the way God wanted it to be? In the sense, you know, of Isaiah you know, 45, did God make this as a place for our habitation? And the answer is, I'm going to go to a source where these guys are actually trying to tell you that there is no God. You know, there's a series out there now called One Strange Rock that's narrated by Will Smith, but it comes from National Geographic. So what I like to do sometimes is use what the atheists say and see if it leads to the destination that they talk about. Now, here's what the atheists have said in a recent National Geographic, March of 2018. Here's the strange rock that you live on. Number one, our planet recycles life-friendly carbon over time. In other words, it allows us to keep breathing, except, of course, here where the altitude is so high. But it allows us to keep breathing because of the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen. And that appears to be very finely uh, tuned because you need about an atmosphere with about 21% oxygen uh, for the average person. Number two, we have an ozone layer to block harmful rays. If we did not have this, then the, then the, then what we would see is that the harmful ultraviolet light from the sun would quickly destroy us. You know, without this ozone layer. And that appears to be pretty cool. And remember this from National Geographic. This is not from a preacher book. All right, number three, we have a big moon to uh, stabilize our axial wobble. And, you know, our Earth does wobble uh, at about two, two degrees, but if it were not for the moon, we'd be wobbling all the time. All right, number four, uh, Earth's varied surfaces support many life forms so that on this Earth uh, you can see such a diversity of plants and animals that are supported uh, by our uh, wonderful atmosphere. Number five, our magnetic field deflects solar tempests sparked by charged particles from the sun. Mesmerizing auroras are a visual reminder of our magnetic field, which deflects the bulk of our star's damaging radiation and solar outburst. You know, there's a lot of solar outbursts because the hydrogen explosions on the sun. Well, guess what? You know, God has figured out about this, and he's figured out that with a magnetic field there to help us to be able to live here. Number six, we're at just the right distance from the sun. Earth orbit, orbits in the so-called Goldilocks zone, where it's not too close and it's not too far. You're on Pluto, and you're just about freezing to death. You're on Mercury, and you do not need to turn on the heat. All right, you know, but, all right, but we are exactly the right spot. All right, and number seven, we're, we're situated safely away from gas giants out there, like Saturn, far enough from us that it does not impact us in a negative way by pulling us toward her. You know, the larger bodies, of course, are going to have more gravitational pull, and they are far enough away that that does not take place. Number eight, the sun is stable. It is a medium-sized star, but it is stable. It's a long-lasting star. And, you know, it's not supposed to, uh, to last. It, it will last as long as God wants it to last. Number nine, we have the right stuff to host a dynamic core. In other words, the interstellar cloud of gas and dust that gave rise to Earth contained enough radioactive elements to power a churning core inside the Earth for billions of years. Do you know that inside the Earth's surface, we didn't discover atomic energy. It's inside the earth. 
You know, there are millions of of so-called atomic reactors inside the earth that keeps us going. It keeps the inner core of the earth balanced so that it does not implode on itself, nor does it explode because it is exactly the right balance. Uh, Number 10, we have giant planets that protect us from afar. Jupiter's strong gravity uh, sent water-rich asteroids crashing into early Earth, they say. I don't believe all of this, of course. But today the massive planet thins out the asteroid belt, and we are protected here. Earth, uh, therefore, does not uh, have frequent collisions, and it's difficult to find meteorites of any kind here on the Earth. Number 11, our sun offers protection from galactic debris. A lot of people said before we went to the moon that if the moon was 4.6 billion years old, which I don't believe, that would be uh, the age of the solar. Okay, if the universe is 14 billion years old, as they say, then that'd be the age of the entire universe. 4.6 billion years. Uh, this is we're getting into terms here that, that equate like preacher salaries. Okay, but in four in, in 4.6 billion years ago, then uh, if there had been dust collecting on the moon for 4.6 billion years, well, some of the people were worried about whether or not the astronauts would be able to walk on the moon. But guess what? The the dirt on the moon was slight, yay thick. Now, why was it yay thick if indeed it was 4.6 billion years old? How much dust is on your furniture after three days? Okay. What would you expect on the moon? All right. So, and then finally, number 12, our galactic path steers us clear of hazards out there. In other words, the orbit of the, of the, of the earth around the sun is just exactly right. I thought that was the last one. Number 13, our location is far from stellar crowds. And uh, so there are the 13 from a, a book that basically doesn't believe that God created the earth. Now, what I want to say is, why didn't you read your own book? Okay, if you read your own book, what would be the mathematical odds of all this being exactly right and conducive to us living here today? What would be the odds of the fine-tuning that exists for the earth to be doing exactly what the earth does? It ain't one strange rock. It's one designed rock. You know, God put us here and made this as a place for our habitation. Therefore, if you're going to be looking, you, why don't you just consider what it is that you just wrote? Um, and, and there is the, the last one under God, a kind of a new thing is, can trees talk? Well, I don't know if any of you are in the area or not. When I go to Tahoe, uh, one of the leaders there at Tahoe, Keith, is uh, he's a forestry uh, specialist, and, and he understands this tree stuff more, more than I would. But let me just tell you about trees. I've always assumed that they were pretty stupid. Okay, I've always assumed it's just a tree, and it's just growing. Well, there's a whole new area out there. Uh, since 2012, for instance, trees communicate with one another connected by fungi. Uh, you know, that, that means uh, that's, a particular, uh, that's a particular form of, of existence where, you know, you have a lot of fun, guy. Okay, all right, according to the work of the University of British Columbia, Professor Suzanne Samard, trees in a forest ecosystem are interconnected with the largest, oldest mother trees serving as hubs. 
When you go to California, California to the forest there, the Redwood Forest, and you see General Sherman and General Lee, um, they're about 300 feet high. I think the highest redwood is 385 feet high, and they're thousands of years old. Now, how in the world did they survive everything that this earth has been through in that period of time? And so she's saying a forest is much more than what you see. Her 30 years of research in Canadian forests have led to an astounding dis discovery. Trees talk, often and over vast distances. Now, this is not from some, you know, this is not from National Enquirer. This is Profiles in Forestry, the University of British Columbia, .ca. Now, this is a, a scientific source. Now, what else do we see here? Here's a hypothetical diagram of this new area called mycology, and it's how it might work. In other words, by a trend, the fungi transmit messages so that if one tree, like in the middle, is a dwarf tree, and the other two are doing quite well, they can actually share nutrients with that tree. Wow. I thought trees were stupid. <laughs> Is it possible that they really do communicate with each other? Well, in the scientific world, there seems to be some solid research that indicates that this is true, especially with long-established, I'm not talking about the trees in your front yard, but with long-established forests, they seem to communicate with, with each other in order to help one another to survive. Now, would you say that that's adaptation, or would you say that's intelligent design? So, where did these complex, multi-component processes and molecular machines come from? Another guy by the name of Michael Behe, now uh, Joe DeWeese uh, that I worked with before the debate, the guy with the Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University in biochemistry. Um, as far as I know, he was the first one in the Church of the Christ to go to Seattle to speak at the Discovery Institute. Now that's where some of these guys are, are centered. Uh, and he went to speak to them because of some of his, of his biochemistry slides that I showed you yesterday. Well, he now has spoken um, at the Discovery Institute where Michael Behe is, because when we were preparing for the debate, he just said, well, I'm just going to call him. And Michael Behe is the guy who is saying that there are, that there are machines in nature that are so complex that they even have a rudder and they have a little motors and all this kind of stuff. So how did all of that stuff in nature get going if indeed, as a matter of fact, it was not designed? So um, we, have, we have some hope. Now, I've really discussed with you now some new ideas which are basically untested in the court system. Now, there has been a case, I believe, in Kansas and a case in Delaware. The judge ruled favorably in Kansas that intelligent design could be taught in Kansas schools. Delaware says no. But here's the reason why the original creation laws were considered to be unconstitutional. Two reasons. And it was, an, it was an, um, as I recall, an eight-to-one vote with Joseph Scalia being the only one who voted that it was okay to teach creationism as an option for how the earth got here. The other judges voted no. And they did so for two reasons, and this was in the 1980s. Number one, creationism is not science. And number two, creationism is religion. Now that's the two reasons why it cannot be taught in the public school system. That means then that if, uh, I guess it would be this. Um, the slides that we're showing that come from science and the possible things that I'm trying to say to you about, look, this has to be designed. The idea of irreducible complexity, the idea of complex specified information, the idea of fine-tuning, 
all of those meet the five criteria of science that Michael Ruse made up uh, that caused the creation laws uh, to be declared unconstitutional. In other words, this could be taught in school. That's right. This could be taught in school because you don't have to reference God necessarily. You can just talk about intelligent design. You don't have to reference the book of Genesis. You can just say, look, here is what's going on in, in the world today, and therefore, why not design? Uh, let's see how Paul used it. Uh, get your Bibles ready, somebody, in Acts 14 and 17 again. To the philosophers and skeptics, Paul was ready to answer a concept stemming from the Greek word apologia, or apologetics in our language. All right, Paul gave uh, philosophical reasons for belief in God. Now, did he? we did yesterday the, the cause arguments. Today, we're going to look at these two sermons at Lystra and at Mars Hill, and we're going to look at the design arguments that, that Paul uses in order to talk to skeptics. Now, he knows that on the, on the top of Mars Hill, where there is the Areopagus, uh, that it is it is ruled, of course, by the pagans because there's the temple, there's the, Parth the Parthenon. By the way, the one in Nashville is prettier. All right, but there, there's the Parthenon in Athens, and there it is. It's dedicated to the virgin Athena. All right, so, and, and then there's another place over here where you've got a temple with four sides dedicated to some more temples. So there's pagans all over that place. Now, when Paul wants to talk to these guys, is he going to use the Bible? No. Why? Well, because they're not at that point yet. They're Gentile philosophers. And therefore, he's going to use whatever it takes to, to start where they are to preach the gospel to them. You start where they are. And if they are not ready uh, to believe, to accept that the Bible is God's inspired word, then you start wherever they are and preach to them Jesus. And that's what Paul is doing here. Somebody read Acts 14, 17, please. Acts 14, 17. And let's be quick. Nevertheless, he did not leave uh, himself without witness. You, do, you go next. And that he did good gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, <clears throat> filling our hearts with food and gladness. All right, now there's a design argument. God designed things to be this way. Even the evaporation condensation cycle. God designed for the crops to have their seasons. He did that. All right, what do you see there, Ricky? And Acts 17, 26. For from one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Yeah, and when he goes on and talks about we're all of one blood, let me just tell you those Gentiles would not be caring for this. Because in that, in that day and time, you were either Gentile or you were barbarian. Right. You were either Greek or you were the worst scum of the world. And here is God saying, look, why do you hate your neighbor? You know, we're made of one blood. And if that's the case then, why do you hate somebody because they're black or Hispanic or Puerto Rican? You know, whatever it is, uh, if they are a Hindu or whatever it is, don't do it because we are of one blood. All right, Acts 17, 29. Who's got that? Being, of God's, being then of God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine is being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, other things around you like gold and silver or stone are not reflecting the image of God in the way that you are because the Latin phrase imago dei means the image of God. You're in the image of God. In my ethics class, I teach an entire class of ethics on the idea of what it means to be made in the image of God and how that phrase is used in the Bible. It's a very important phrase. 
Why should you not lie to, to somebody? Because that person's in the image of God. Why should you not cheat somebody else? Because that person's in the image of God. If you're in the image of God, you don't treat one another that way. Therefore, that idea is very important in ethics, but that's a, another lesson. Okay, moral arguments, I don't, uh, that's when we did the debate. Um, to, I, I had a slide indicating that to me, Alex looked like... Looks like Captain Obvious. Okay, <laughs> but, nonetheless, but nonetheless, we, he was he was pleasant to deal with. We had a good discussion. I'm not going to talk about moral arguments because uh, I did that last year, and uh, I just put them in here for the sake of completeness. But I, don't, I do want you to remember this evil guy right here. This guy, this guy is evil. Auschwitz, 1.1 billion people he killed. Belzec, 436,000. Chumno, 340,000. Majdanek, 300 to 350,000 people. Sobibor, 260,000 people. Treblinka, at least 700,000, maybe a million people. And look at what one man can do if he can get the people to buy into his evil theology. His evil philosophy. And that is, how did this guy who was Austrian tell people that the ideal human characteristics were actually uh, German? You know, uh, he was born in Austria. And the German traits of blue eyes and, and blonde hair. How did he do that? Well, I, you know, looking back in history, I don't know that I can really uh, explain that. But Joyce and I had... Uh, one chance in, in Germany to go to a concentration camp. It wasn't this one, uh, but when we uh, landed in Munich, there's one about 50 miles away. Um, he had to build so many of these to build the, uh, to burn the bodies that he had to, they had to keep on building furnace after furnace after furnace, and they were kept running most of the time uh, because of all the dead bodies that were there. The estimates would be about six million. All right, now one more, and that would be the moral argument. So let's go back to Acts 17:27. He made us to be seekers. That means he made us to be lookers for 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 purpose in this world. Is there any purpose in this world? And as a matter of fact, we can be groping, but God is there uh, so because we can reach out there and we can find him. Now, this is called in philosophy the proper epistemic distance. Now, if God is too close, when he appears someday, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Right? All right. That means he's too close because he's taken away people's freedom of choice. I'm pretty sure there's going to be people bowing their knees that really don't want to. Okay, I mean, if every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, how many atheists are you going to have there? You know what you say at an atheist funeral? All dressed up and no place to go. That's right. Okay, so you know, so what are you going to, what's, what's going on here? Or, or the dyslexic atheist who said there's no dog. Okay, so as we think about uh, this, notice in Acts 17, 30 and 31, we are accountable to God uh, by the judgment that's someday coming. And so that's the end of that. And today I was hoping that we could get into some stuff about the Bible. Okay, if somebody says to you then, how do you try to defend the fact that the Bible's from God? How do you do that? Um, you know, if somebody were to say to you, well, do you believe that the Bible is above human books? For the first time in history, the millennials are on record as saying about 59, 51% to 49%. They now, the millennials, that would be now the 30-somethings, they reject the idea that the Bible is from God. Now, that's the first time in recorded history that, that anybody has been surveyed in the United States where now the majority of them think that the Bible was just written by men. 
It's just written by men. Now, I don't want you to be alarmed by that, but I want you to understand that it is an opportunity. And the opportunity is, okay, so if you're going to study with a 20-something or a 30-something, it might be that you need to study some of this material about the inspiration of the Bible. Now, there are really, um, I believe that God reveals himself in two books. There's the natural realm where God reveals himself. We've been discussing that in the stuff we've been doing about nature here uh, from Romans chapter uh, from, from Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 etc and we live in a world of wonder don't we uh, it's a tremendously complex book the farther out we go the more complex the universe is and the farther in we go the more complex the universe is so what we see here is that the world itself is a book of wonder and yet it preaches does it not Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Go ahead and read some of Psalm 19 on your own time and look at the allusions to the fact that if you read the, the, the world, it's like reading a book that God has written to you. Right. It's like God, you know, signing his signature series, and his signature series is this beautiful world in which we live. All right, and then, then there's the world above nature. And that would be supernatural, and that would be the fact that the Bible is, has, been, has been supernaturally written to us. All right, so God reveals himself in two books, um, and both of them are very important. Now, how do you defend the Bible? Okay, it's a four-step process. We won't be able to finish this today. Uh, I'll try to finish it uh, tomorrow and then have a question and answer period. But it's a four-step process. All right, if somebody says to you, how do you know that the Bible is from God? It's a four-step process. Number one, inspiration. That means uh, God put his breath into it. The word itself is used only one time in the Bible, 2 Timothy 3.16, every scripture inspired of God. The word theopneustos means theos for God and pneuma for spirit. So you can guess what the word means. It means God spirited or God winded or God breathed. God breathed this book, Paul says. And by the way, he probably was referring basically to Old Testament books because the New Testament was still in the process of being completed at the time that Paul wrote this, although several books, I believe, were already extant. They already were in existence to the early church. All right, but what does he say? All right, number one, God's got to inspire it. Number two, somebody's got to try to figure out which books are the good ones and which ones are the false ones. You know, which ones are really from God and which ones are not. And that's called canonicity. No, not that way. Okay, but the word canon, now, I just saw this the other day. Uh, my wife and I uh, like to go junk teaking. Uh, she is more tolerant of it than I am. Uh, but nonetheless, we'll go junk teaking. Uh, we're not really into the ultra-fine antiques. But I saw an old Lufkin rule. Uh, my dad always kept one. If, for those of you who don't know what carpenter pants pockets are for, well, one of those is for a Lufkin rule. All right, and, and, it's, uh, and, it was, and you would fold it out, and it was a six foot rule but you and then you go and my dad could do that all at once and then i'd try that and i'd break it okay but you know he could and now what is that that is something that you measure by now a cannon therefore is a measuring stick or a measuring reed you, you get a reed and you say, all right, now I want my house to be this size. So you get this measuring stick and you lay out the size of your house using that cannon. 
Therefore, it's called canonicity. Uh, we two weeks ago came back from uh, Ark Encounter in, in Kentucky. Um, it is uh, roughly the size of the Ark in the Bible, and it's about 501 feet long. Now, the question is exactly what kind of cubit are they using, but a cubit was a measuring stick roughly from here to here on an average person. If you were to do your fist this way and then the end of your elbow, that would be roughly a cubit. All right, and so Noah was told to build the ark, you know, 300 cubits by 75 cubits by 45 cubits, and that's the study of canonicity with regard to the Bible. All right, number third, there's the transmission of the text. That means how does it get to me? How's it transmitted? Okay, look at your phone, but not for long, and tell me how many bars you got. All right, how many bars you got? I got four or five. You got four or five bars. Who is your carrier? <laughs> well, I got three. Okay. Look at that. All right. So that means then that somebody is in charge of bouncing that signal off the satellites to your phone at a certain level of transmission. Haven't you seen times in your life that you'd like to have even one bar? You know, if I could just get, if I could get to a place where there was one bar. All right. All right. So that's transmission. Now, how did the Bible get to us? There are no satellites. How did the Bible get to us? That's the study of transmission. And number four, how did the Bible get translated? The only Bibles we generally buy are, are Bibles in English. But you know the brother that was talking about the various translations that are uh, uh, being made and distributed in India and other parts of the world? That's very, very meaningful because a, a lot of people, number one, did not have the Bible in their language. And number two, even if it was in their language, they could not read it. They, they did not have the ability to read and write. So, and number three, you might have lived during a time when the prevailing church did not want you to have the Bible in your language. They didn't want it. Why? Because I can feed you as a mother feeds her, her baby birds if I can read Latin and you can't. Therefore, you've got to depend on me as the quote-unquote priest because I am the guy that can tell you what the Bible says. Well, that word for putting the Bible into ordinary, ordinary Greek is called koine. Ordinary Greek is koine. Now, there is classical Greek, but ordinary is koine. So let's look at some pictures with regard to the first of these, the inspiration of the text. All right, now, when, why do you believe that the Bible is inspired? All right, we've got 20 minutes. All right, why don't we believe that the Bible is inspired? Yell at somebody. Give me, uh, give me your best shot. Why do you believe the Bible is inspired? The evidence is found in it. Well, be more specific than that. Uh, it talks about the paths in the sea. It talks about... All right, in Psalm 8, the paths of the sea. So it has scientific foreknowledge in it. All right, give me another. Yes, sir? Unity of purpose. Unity of purpose. And what would that be like? That means it's a common thread. Yeah, Scarlet Thread tying the 66 books together. And if the purpose of the Bible, um, as some have said, now remember Thomas B. Warren was my mentor, he and Roy Deaver would say that the purpose of the Bible is the glorification of God and the salvation of man through Christ. Now I add one more thing to that. And that would be the, the glorification of God, the salvation of man through Christ as revealed by the Holy Spirit. And that involves the entire Godhead, and it involves all people. All right, so the purpose of the Bible involves all people. It involves you and me, and therefore, uh, it, you know, that would be unity in purpose. There's also unity in theme. Unity in theme would be in the Old Testament, the Messiah's going to come. 
He's going to come. And now, in the New Testament, he has come, and he's going to come back. And there's even unity in doctrine, meaning that whatever the Bible teaches about something, it teaches consistently without error. That word is inerrancy. It teaches, it teaches it without error. So if I can get to that point, here's what I need to do. I need to show that the Bible has characteristics that make it BHP. Remember this. If you don't remember the entire thing, you can remember BHP. All right, what does BHP stand for? Beyond Human Production. So if I'm, All right, so if I'm holding your Bible here and, and somebody says to you, okay, why do you believe it is from God? Well, you can give them a lot of limbs on the tree which you have, you know, the unity and, and, and scientific foreknowledge and all that stuff. But, but the main idea is I want to show you that humans could not have written this book. That's it. I want to show you that humans unaided by God could not have written this book. And therefore, if I can show that it is beyond human production, that means that it's not like other books on your shelf. Sorry, J.K. Rowling. Okay, it is not like other books and other people that you like. It is going to be elevated above the position. Now, therefore, if you want an extended one, if the Bible has characteristics A, B, C, dot, 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 T, that means I need a certain set of characteristics. By the way, there's my wife back there. How did I recognize her this morning? We've been married 47 years. How do I recognize her this morning? Anybody know? Did I check her fingerprints? Did I check the retina pattern in her eye? Did I check her DNA pattern of homeostasis? Did I check any of that stuff? How did I know it was her? Maybe I was sleeping with the wrong woman. Okay, so how do I know that it is her? What? All right, there are a number of characteristics that if I see them all together, I recognize her face. You know another thing about face recognition software? Well, if you can know enough, you can say, hey, you know, I'm sitting next to the same person in class every day. Why? Because I recognize that person. All right, and now how many times a day can you recognize each other with just these necessary characteristics? Oh, millions of times. Here at Red River, you recognize each other every day, and you never check anybody's fingerprints. All right, what you do, however, is you look at a set of characteristics that help you to make the right decision. In other words, that is the case. Now, uh, my, my good friend Nan Chambers, uh, his wonderful wife, Leola, she has an identical twin, okay? And I'm kind of glad that her identical twin, Viola, is not with her all the time because I'm assuming that Dan is with, is with Leola instead of Viola because, you know, uh, they are twins, all right? And, and pretty close to identical, all right? But they're, even identical twins are not truly identical. I'm going to skip over this because of time. So here's some areas by the inspiration of the Bible uh, I want to look at as we look at these four areas. Number one, postmodernism and hermeneutics. Uh, in 1994 was the first time I began to think about this. And that's when um, I had a discussion with Randy Harris and James Walters at Harding Graduate School in Memphis. We had a discussion about does culture change the way you interpret Scripture? Yeah. And according to, you know, a lot of people, it has everything to do with how you interpret Scripture because the Bible does not have any absolute message. 
But it has to be interpreted through your culture, your language, uh, your, your habits, your idiosyncrasies, uh, what's peculiar to you and all that stuff, because the Bible itself cannot be understood. Therefore, postmodernists were led toward the view that there is no absolute truth. Now, when I graduated from college, Lipscomb, in 1972, almost all of the graduating college students believed in absolute truth. Matter of fact, about, 80, about 82%, if, if what I... Uh, remember is correct. You know what's changed about the graduating students today? About 82% of them don't believe in absolute truth. And one of the things that has changed is that sure enough, um, they uh, have bought into the idea that you read the Bible your way, I'll read the Bible my way, Holy Spirit's going to guide you, Holy Spirit's going to guide me, get out of my face. And therefore, there's no such thing as, in, as objective interpretation of Scripture. You might call this reader response. Uh, some of the, the guys who are big in this, uh, Paul Ricoeur and, and Michael Foucault and some other French guys whose names I don't remember. Okay, but, the, but they're behind this theory that the Bible cannot be understood objectively. Now, first of all, I want to ask you, what am I saying when I'm saying... Can the Bible be understood objectively? Who knows? Can the Bible be understood objectively? Who knows what I'm asking? Ma'am? Only facts and figures, part of it. But what do I mean by object, objective interpretation? How many of you are married? One explanation only. Oh, one explanation only. Now I'm understanding better. Um, I told you my wife and I have been married 47 years. You ever find that marital communication that is objective is sometimes hard to come by? Okay, you know, because I got four daughters, okay, and my wife is also a girl. And so all my life I've been trying to learn how to speak Czech. Can I say that? Okay, which means, you know, how do you understand women? For instance, I come home from a gospel meeting and been gone somewhere, okay, and maybe Joyce didn't go with me this time, and she says, how'd it go? And I said, it was fine, which is perfectly enough communication for a guy. But it is not enough for her because she wants details. You know, she says, tell me about so-and-so. You know, tell me about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And, and, and I said, I told you it was fine. You know, and, and everything is okay if I tell you it's fine. I didn't get fired. I'm not thrown out of the brotherhood. Everything is fine, you know. <laughs> and so guys do this. Guys are big to fix it. You know, I can fix that. You, you know, your daughter, you know, uh, I love these, the thorns, these people over here, but Arden is a special friend. And, and if, uh, if, if one of my daughters like Arden could not open a bottle and she says, dad, can you open this? I'm going to tell you that I'm going to open it or I'm going to break my wrist. Okay. Because I'm going to do it while guys fix stuff. That's what they do. They fix it. Women feel it and guys fix it. Now that's not always true, but it is often true. Now, that means then, am I going to say that it's impossible to ever understand my wife? What would you say about that? No. Why? Because you know her. She knows you. Okay. It is possible to understand, even though I'm a guy, and I do have tinnitus, which is background noise, and especially in my right ear, and I can blame that on any time in which I have misunderstood or miscommunicated. Okay. <laughs> But even though I know that miscommunication is possible, that does not lead me to what conclusion? Tell me. 
Even though I know that miscommunication is possible and does happen, that does not lead me to a wrong conclusion, which is what? Come on, talk to me. That I can never objectively understand my wife. That I never can truly do it. Now, with regard to the Bible, let's see how that goes. If you believe in reader response theory or you believe in one of those theories that, that would make it impossible for you to understand the Bible, I'm going to tell you why. All right. Um, let's see. I need to come back to this later, but I want to look at uh, Brother Ralph. Oh, here you go. There are three reasons why you cannot understand from scholarship. There are three reasons why you cannot understand the Bible objectively. All right. You ready? Number one. You have no idea what the original author meant in that passage. Do you want to say you understand about spirits in prison? Do you understand about other mysteries of the Bible that are difficult to get at? Baptism for the dead? You understand all that stuff? Well, then the argument goes, it was so long ago, we cannot know for sure what the author intended when the author wrote it. Therefore, I'm having trouble with objective interpretation. Number two, modern readers of the Bible can never understand the, the context in which the original statement was made. Can you understand, I mentioned this morning to the preachers, but uh, this just doesn't fit in well to our culture. When Paul was about to leave Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, it says that the elders fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, when's the last time you ever saw an elder fall on a preacher's neck and kiss him? All right, did, did that happen in your church Sunday? All right, I want to see, you know, did that happen where you were? Did, did an elder fall on your preacher's neck and kiss him? Uh, and the answer would be no. Okay, so what in the world is going on here? Why are the elders falling on Paul's neck and kissing him? Because that we don't do. I've been to, to South, South America several times. And if you go like to Peru, uh, the, the women will do the thing on both sides of the cheek. But if you go to Argentina, the guys do it too. Okay, you go to Argentina, man, they'll lay it on you, especially once they come to know you and the church down there is so special. I love the church down there, but you leave. I'm thinking of one of the elders by the name of Juan. Uh, when, I, when I left, he was a gaucho sort of guy, and man, he laid it on me. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm from West Tennessee. I ain't quite used to that yet. I, you know, <laughs> in West Tennessee, we don't do that. It's a little bit. You know, putting you in the wrong category. Okay, and so you're kind of thinking, I don't do that. But it was perfectly normal if you understand what the world was like when these elders thought that they would never see Paul again. If you understand that, you might not fall in his neck and kiss him, but you might hug him for a long time. There could be a lot of ways that you could do that. Now, what we're talking about here is, well, is the Bible impossible to understand? Number three, modern readers of Scripture cannot understand the full nature or extent to which our own personality biases the text. I mean, all right, I'm going to tell you, I don't like yellow and I don't like green. Okay, I don't know why, but if you're going to give me a car, do not let it be yellow or green. I'm going to tell you, I don't like those colors. Now, my wife can just tell you that I do have maybe a couple of things that blend in with green, but nothing that's just like purely green because I don't like them. Why? I don't know. 
And guess what? It's really none of your business. I mean, you know, because the fact is, I don't like them. I like blue. Okay, brown is good too. But blue is great, you know. And red is good. I got a red motorcycle. Okay, and so I like those colors. But why? Well, because I got some personal biases that I can't even explain. I won't tell you much about this, but my wife uh, doesn't like chickens. Uh, she likes to eat chickens, but she doesn't like, you know, to be in a chicken barn. Okay, there's, and, and what is it that you don't like? Uh, anybody want to share? Something that you don't like and that maybe makes no sense? Tomatoes. Tomatoes. Very good. What else? What? Butter. Butter. Ooh. <laughs> Snakes. All right, so when you think about these things, they're part of your personal experience. Now, when you bring these to the text, do they cloud your understanding of the text? Because you might be biased in a certain way that would make you lead, uh, reach the wrong conclusion. So if you look at those three things, let's see if you can remember them, then there are people who are saying that the Bible cannot be understood. Now, what's at stake here? Of whether or not the Bible can be understood. What's at stake? Talk to me. Is it authentic? Is it real? Is it possible for a church to understand the seven ones? One body and one spirit as you are called and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in all. Can you understand those alike? Is it possible to objectively understand anything from the Bible? And these people are saying to you, no, for three reasons. Now, what are the three reasons? Impress me. What are the three reasons? Number one, you don't know what the original author meant. Number two, you don't understand the, what it was like to have lived at the time that that was spoken. All right, number three, we have our own biases which make it impossible for us to objectively understand Scripture. Do you think they are correct? Why? Why are they not correct? Will you admit that you have biases? All right, will you admit that it's hard to understand a text that was 2,700 years old? Will you admit that it's difficult to think like they thought 2,700 years ago? Yes. Well, then why don't you just understand that whatever church or religion or faith that you want to be a part of is okay because it's so individualistic since the Bible cannot be objectively understood? It's God breathed. It's God breathed, you say, Chuck? Well, so what? So it's perfect. he's perfect. Say again. Yes, the people who say this have their own biases as well, do they not? And what Chuck said is, is God breathed. I'm wondering this. If the Bible cannot be understood, what does that say about God? Yeah. He didn't want us to understand or he's he understand. All right, one possibility. He didn't want us to understand it. Give me another possibility. He didn't understand it himself. Give me another possibility. He didn't write it. He didn't write it, or he wasn't concerned about it, or he thought it would be funny for us to kind of wallow in a sea of different interpretations and different churches. Does that sound like God to you? All right, what kind of God wrote the book according to uh, his own description? What kind of God wrote the book? Say again. He's a benevolent God. He's a loving God. 
He's the God of order. He gives us all things that pertain to life and to godliness. He gave us all things that pertain to life and godliness. But you're missing a big one. He doesn't lie. He doesn't lie. Titus 1 and verse 2, Hebrews 6 verses 17 and 18, he does not lie. So if God really is behind this book, he is not going to lie to you. And if I say the Bible says X, and good brother, if you say the Bible says not X, then at least one of us is going to be wrong. He gave us a reason of deduction. Yes, the reason of deduction. That's a good point. All right, so um, you're catching on to modern interpretation. But remember, your kids may think this way, and that's one reason why they're so tolerant of so many churches, is because they think that each church can be individually led by the Holy Spirit to their own truth about the Bible. How many of you, listen, name some names of churches that uh, are in your community that you've never heard of before until recently? The what? All right, New Life. What else you got? Christ Church. What? Christ Church of the Valley. Christ Church of the Valley. Cowboy Church. Cowboy Church. What? The Living Word. I never got that. What did he say? Anyway, I, I know it was what you said was right. Okay, so, all right, so what else? Now, now what I want to know is, why are many of our kids choosing churches, the names of which we've never heard of before? All right, David, you're back there, and you can't hide anymore. Our president, our wonderful president, Fried Hardeman. Uh, why is it that many of our kids are choosing this, you think? I know you studied this. What do you think? Okay. We're trying to discuss that in the morning with the preachers about how, how things have changed so much with college students and with others, how the generations have changed so much. For instance, I'm going to tell you, uh, I don't do Panera Bread because I'm going to be, if I eat there, I'm going to be hungry in 20 minutes. Okay, and, and uh, I don't pay $6 for a cup of coffee, uh, coffee at Starbucks, whether it's Grande, uh, Latte, or Yamama A. I do not do that. Because I can buy a shirt for $6. All right. Now, if that's the case, then that's my generation. But then my daughters do the things. One of my daughters said to the, her five-year-old, uh, she said, do you want to wear your Sperry's or do you want to wear your Chacos? Now, if you're older and you don't know what Chacos are, Chacos are sandals that cost about a million dollars. Okay, they, they cost about 100 to $120 or on sale. And if you look on a, a good spring day at Fried Hardeman, about one student out of every three is going to be wearing Chacos. Now, why? I'm thinking, here's the way I'm thinking. Rather than paying $80 to $100 for flip-flops, what you can do is wear a set and buy several more and save money, you know, and so, but, I, but the new generation, they think differently, all right, and so, uh, what do you want to say about this, Ralph? Well, I, therefore, objective interpretation is impossible. Here's what I want to say. If you reach this conclusion, you're digging a hole for yourself. You're digging a big, rational, intellectual hole for yourself because you're shooting yourself in the face. Because if you write a book and defend what I just said, then your own book becomes subject to what you just said. And that is, I can't understand your book. Why should I buy it? 
I cannot understand your book objectively. Therefore, the whole, these exegetes, that means Bible interpreters, have dug for themselves is deep. Not only would the Bible be impossible to objectively understand, so would all written communication, whether ancient or modern. For that matter, those who write hundreds of pages about objective hermeneutics being impossible suffer the wrath of self-contradiction since their own writings would also be impossible to understand. So why buy their books? If these three barriers are there, do you think that you're the only one that's exempt from the virus? I mean, do you think that you're the only one who's ever figured this out? If you write a book reaching a conclusion that nobody else has ever reached before, you might want to go back and look at your thesis. You know, because it could very well be that somebody else has written about this before and you thought you were being stinking original. All right, and, it, and it's really difficult to be original about stuff like this because there's so much stuff out there that's being written. But if you do this, you're not only throwing the Bible out the window, you might as well uh, throw Baum out the window as well. Books of Megan. Okay, you might as as well throw them all out. Therefore, also oral communication, just talking with somebody. Can I understand them? Well, no. Well, since no teachers could teach objectively, whether written or oral, why is there a teacher standing in the front of the platform? If I teach in class that you cannot understand me objectively, then why am I giving you a test? Right. Now tell me, the, what, what's on most tests? You know, what, what, uh, what forms of understanding are on most tests? We'll start with true and false. All right, that, you're, that means that you're saying that that statement is either true or false objectively. What else? Multiple, Multiple choice. That means there is a right choice and there are some wrong choices. What else? Fill in the blank. Fill in the blank. There are some right ways to fill in the blank and there are some wrong ways to fill in the blank. Uh, when James Larson was alive, um, he was a great man. And he was on the Bible faculty at Fried Hardeman. He, he was teaching Genesis and Exodus. And one of the things about Genesis and Exodus is had the list of Ten Commandments. So one boy almost had it right when he said, Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not admit adultery. Okay. <laughs> not quite right. Okay. All right. So, all right. So that means then if I stand in front of you in a class and I do this, I don't have the right to test you. I don't have a right to give you a grade. Why? It's not possible for you to understand what I'm teaching. And therefore, I cannot hold you responsible for it on a test. But guess what? I will. <laughs> Why? Because I believe in objective understanding. And I believe that you shall know the truth, truth and the truth, the truth shall set you free. So whatever is being envisioned in that passage, if you don't know it, you're not free from your sins. I do know that the Brians were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they... Search the, Search the scriptures daily to find out whether or not they were so. I do know from Acts 17 that Paul went from one synagogue to another proving and alleging and showing that Jesus was the Christ. And I do know that Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 16 and verse 1, he says, Now that which I handed to you, I am glad that you are living in it. I handed you these things. Now, in Greek, that's a paradidomai, which is a, I gave you these traditions. Sometimes in the Bible, a tradition is a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. All right, it's a good thing in 1 Corinthians 16 and 1. I handed that to you, and you are living in it, and, and I'm so thankful. And Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, the things that I gave to you, what are you supposed to do? You were supposed to give them to faithful, other, to faithful people who are able to teach others also. 
So I'm thinking that uh, I'm a long way from denying absolute truth, even though I ain't into Panera Bread. Okay, so whatever we think then, um, what's going on in the churches of Christ? Um, well, uh, anything is a simplicity, um, but the reason why I use this and try to see how things are different in the churches of Christ is that it's pattern theology. Ooh, level four. Okay, pattern theology versus I, I didn't see anybody. Sorry, come back tomorrow.